Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Welcome to Resurrection Weekend, ladies and gentlemen. And if you're tuning in expecting to hear part two of my interview with Dr. Craig Keener, we're actually going to air that next week because we have a very special guest today. Dr. Keener, of course, is a special guest as well. But I thought today, since it is Resurrection Weekend, we talk a little bit about archaeology, particularly as it relates to the New Testament, as it relates to Gospels and Acts. And there's probably nobody better to talk about that then someone we have not have on the, had on the program before, we should have, but we're going to have him on today. His name is Dr. Craig Evans. And Dr. Evans, since we haven't had him on the program, I'll do a little bit of introduction. He's the Distinguished Professor of Christian Origins at Houston Baptist University, which, by the way, friends, has put together a fabulous apologetics uh, 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 course and, and degree down there at HBU. You need to check that out. Dr. Evans has his Ph.D. in Biblical Studies from Claremont He's also a very well-known evangelical scholar who's on several very prestigious uh, societies dedicated to New Testament studies. He's also the director of the Christian Thinker Society Fellows Program in Strategic Studies. He's written more than 70 books or contributed to more than 70 books and hundreds of articles and reviews. He's been a visiting fellow at Princeton Theological Seminary. He's given lectures at Cambridge, at Oxford, at Durham, at Yale, many other universities, colleges, and seminaries. He's a Fox News opinion contributor. He also regularly lectures and gives talks at popular conferences and retreats on the historical Jesus, on archaeology, on the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Bible. He's been interviewed hundreds of times across radio networks, in Canada and the United States. He's been seen on Dateline, NBC, BBC, the Discovery Channel, History Channel, History Television, and others. He's also served as a consultant for the National Geographic Society and the Bible miniseries. Remember that Bible miniseries that was out a couple of years ago that Mark Burnett and Roma Downey put out? Dr. Evans was a consultant for that. So I don't know why we're having this guy in the program. <laughs> He's eminently well qualified. Dr. Evans, great having you on. Thank you very much. And uh, you have written a relatively new book that I came across recently. In fact, it was it was recommended to me uh, by a friend, Dr. Evans. It's called Jesus and the Remains of His Day. When you get into the evidence for Jesus in the material uh, culture, what what really prompted you to to get involved in 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 this kind of investigation, Craig? There are a lot of reasons. One of them uh, is just it's exegetically valuable. In other words, the more you know about the physical remains of the past, the, what the archaeologists, of course, deal with, what they unearth, the better you understand the story, the story of Jesus, the Gospels, the better you understand Scripture. You can simply interpret it better. Uh, there's always a temptation to re- unconsciously to read our own understanding of uh, life and culture, the very thing we live in every day, to read it back into the old stories and just assume people back then were a lot like us and did things the way we do, and not appreciate their distinctive features. Archaeology helps correct that. Archaeology answers all kinds of questions, and then we just understand uh, the text better. But also, it's it's confirming. 
Mm. Archaeology shows that the uh, the Bible stories, the old history that's recounted, whether it's the Old Testament or in the New Testament, the Gospels and Acts, that this isn't just a lot of fairy tales that talk about people that never existed or things that never happened. Because if that's true, then archaeology wouldn't corroborate it. Archaeology mm. would not cohere with it and clarify it. And so archaeology, in other words, doesn't clarify and support and elucidate stuff that doesn't exist or never happened. And so there are those reasons, too. And I also find the entire approach refreshing, uh, intellectually, mentally stimulating, but also emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually refreshing as well. So just no matter how you slice it, I find it very interesting and very worthwhile. Now, how did you become a Christian, Dr. Evans? I became a Christian, uh, I suppose you might say, in a traditional standard way, hearing the gospel, the sense, a a resonance, uh, a sense in the heart, uh, in the mind, and the soul that this was truth, that it was transformative, that, uh, you know, this was the thing to do, it was the right thing to do. And then, of course, you know, most people start out, uh, you know, new in the faith, of course, and then in the passage of time, uh, there's a deepening of faith, a deepening of understanding of what it is and what it is to have a relationship with God, to be at peace with God. One grows in the faith uh, in a lot of ways, morally and emotionally, but also intellectually. And uh, it was as a, as a university student that I decided to pursue graduate studies. And uh, as I pursued graduate studies, I got into it deeper and deeper, and eventually I became interested in the artifacts, the oldest manuscripts, the archaeology, and on it went. Well, this book that you've written called Jesus and the Remains of His Day is a fascinating book. I highly encourage our listeners to get it. It is an academic book, but it's written in such a way that anybody can understand it. It's well-footnoted, well-researched, and it covers the most prominent discoveries in archaeology relating to Jesus in the New Testament that you'll find anywhere. In fact, I saw you, Dr. Evans, in a recent interview, I think it was on 100 Huntley Street, you were talking about how you just felt you needed to update uh, the discoveries that have been made in recent years, and that's what this book does so well. Well, uh, thank you, and uh, yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. Anyone that's close to the field visits Israel every year, knows the archaeologists, reads the literature, popular or scholarly, you realize, my goodness, every year stuff is discovered that relates Mm -hmm. to early church history, relates to Jesus, the Gospels, relates to the Old Testament or whatever, not just in Israel, but elsewhere uh, in other uh, Middle Eastern lands, in uh, Turkey, what used to be Asia Minor. Uh, Egypt, Italy itself, Rome, and so forth, that just things keep being found. There are several hundred archaeological excavations uh, that relate one way or another to uh, the Bible and its history and its places uh, that are going on every year, and dozens of excavations every year underway in Israel itself. And so uh, it's just almost bewildering. Bewildering. It's just uh, almost overwhelming how much keeps coming out. And so I pay attention to it, try to stay current. Sometimes there's a lag between uh, archaeological work and it's a publication. And that's part of the reason, that's part of the thinking behind Jesus and the remains of his day, because I go to Israel regularly, I know the archaeologists, and I go to the dig sites uh, I'm aware of what's being found, even though it hasn't been published yet. Sometimes it's announced, 
the Biblical Archaeology Society or the Biblical Archaeology Review reports on something, but oftentimes it's in a popular level. It's it's not too detailed. But I get to go. I look at the inscriptions. I see the artifacts. I talk to the archaeologists. And it's a chance then to uh, publish something that is very up-to-date and uh, reflects, you know, the discussion as, as it's happening right now. And so there are things in my book, you know, right now that probably won't be published in any other form for another few years. So in that sense, the book is, is a bit ahead of typical uh, archaeological publications. So I think it serves the readers well for that reason. Yes, it does. Again, the book is called Jesus and the Remains of His Day. The author is Dr. Craig Evans. He's our guest today. We have not had Dr. Evans on the program before. That's an our oversight. He is a, a wealth of information on the historical material culture that's been left over, the archaeology. And in fact, uh, maybe right after the break, Dr. Evans, we're coming up to it. I, I just saw... Uh, something related to Isaiah that has been discovered in Israel. It actually was discovered several years ago, but it just hit the press uh, uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Maybe I can ask you about that. But then there are several uh, discoveries that we'll talk about from your book that uh, we'll, we'll get to right after the break. You're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. My guest, Dr. Craig Evans' book, Jesus and the Remains of His Day. We're going to get into some of the specifics of that right after the break. Also want to point out, that our online course, Why I Still Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, starts April 9th. Got to go to crossexamine.org. If you take that course, the premium version, I'll be answering your questions live online via Zoom video. You don't want to miss it. April 9th. Check out crossexamine.org. Click on online courses. And we're back in two with Dr. Craig Evans. Don't go away. If you're low on the FM dial looking for NPR, go no further. We're actually going to tell you the truth here. That's our intent anyway. You're not going to hear this discussion on National Public Radio. We're talking with Dr. Craig Evans and his fabulous new book called Jesus and the Remains of His Day, Studies in Jesus and the Evidence of Material Culture. And uh, Dr. Evans, just before the break, I, I was talking about something I saw uh, that just uh, came up uh, in the popular media just a couple of weeks ago about Isaiah over there in Israel. Can you tell us a little bit about that about that discovery? Yeah, I'd be delighted to. It's a very significant uh, discovery, uh, thanks to the work of a premier Israeli archaeologist named Eilat Mazar. Uh, it's, it's just in the family. She's the granddaughter of Benjamin Mazar, who was a legend in his time as a famous Israeli archaeologist. Eilat, for years, has been working in Jerusalem in what would be the older city just south of the Temple Mount in Siwan, called the uh, uh, City of David. She very likely has uncovered the palace of King David, which, of course, was uh, lived in by his successors, including King Hezekiah in the 8th century B.C. Two years ago, two and a half years ago, she found a clay seal uh, that mentions the name of Hezekiah, king of, of Judah. Well, just a few months ago, she found a clay seal that mentions Isaiah the prophet. These seals were kind of like rings uh, where you would press into the wax. That's the medieval and, and more modern way of doing it. Well, in antiquity, it was clay, <clears throat> and a clay seal that sealed a rolled-up scroll that showed that nobody had opened it and tampered with it. 
Well, these seals survive from antiquity. Sometimes they're roasted, cooked in a fire. When something burns, they're then turned into ceramic, which makes them basically indestructible, and they can survive in the ground for hundreds of years, even thousands of years. So the Isaiah seal was found a few months ago, reported on just a few weeks ago, and it was found about 10 feet away from where the Hezekiah seal was found. Anybody familiar with Second Kings in the Bible or the book of Isaiah in the Bible will know that they were contemporaries. Isaiah the prophet approached King Hezekiah on different occasions and spoke to him and gave him words of comfort, sometimes exhorted him. This is extraordinary evidence. This shows us these are real people. Uh, Ezekiah is not a fiction. He's a real person who felt and, and encountered the, the threat of Assyria, the empire to the northeast. And Isaiah assured him that he needs to have faith in God, the God of Israel. And so Isaiah is a real person. Of course, he's left behind, uh, you know, his famous... Uh, collection of prophecies, the book of Isaiah. And we found a copy of Isaiah at Qumran, you probably mm. know, uh, more than a half a century ago, dating to about 200 B.C. So these are the kinds of discoveries uh, in work in, in Jerusalem and in Israel that over again and over again show that the biblical record is not fiction, but talking about real people and real places. And... Uh... We are heading over there next week. Uh, some of you who are listening to my voice right now are going on the trip with me to Israel. And our guide, as you know, is Eli Shukran, who is also a friend of Dr. Evans. And uh, uh, Dr. Shukran, or Shukran, Eli Shukran, is the archaeologist who discovered the Pool of Siloam and excavated much of the city of David that Dr. Evans is talking about right now. Now, I'm searching my memory, uh, Dr. Evans. Because I remember there were two other characters in the in the uh, in the book of Jeremiah that I think that we found seals in the same area. Am I right about that? Aren't there a couple of seals from the book of Jeremiah there? Yeah, that's right. Baruch, uh, his secretary, but also other other figures are mentioned. And in fact, uh, Biblical Archaeology Review published a study not long ago noting that there are now 50 people mentioned in the Bible that are now corroborated through archaeology. By the way, that's been augmented. The number is now 54, actually. As wow. work, uh, Of course, you can now add Isaiah to that list, so I guess sure. that brings us to 55. But, uh, yeah, that's right. We just keep digging people up. And, uh, you know, it wasn't that long ago, Frank, that there were skeptics who said King David was a myth. Mm. There never was a King David. And, of course, now we have his name in an inscription found in the early 1990s. And, by the way, not a Hebrew inscription, not a, uh Israelite inscription, but an enemy inscription, a Syrian inscription acknowledging the house of David, David the king. And so it's this kind of evidence that just keeps coming to light, and we realize, okay, these are real people. They really did live. Things happened back then. The Bible's telling us these stories, and archaeology continues to corroborate and clarify in very helpful ways uh, these past events. Now, Craig, I have to ask you this. Have you found any material remains? You know, do you know of any material remains that directly contradict New Testament events? You know, thanks for asking that. I have to admit that that's the hardest question 
that's ever put to me. I scratch my head and I simply have no answer other than to say, no, nothing has been found that contradicts uh, what's been reported in the Gospels. That's my real area of expertise. I'm not aware of anything that contradicts uh, Old Testament narratives, but that's not my uh, uh, area of expertise, so I defer to others. But when it relates to the Gospels, the Gospels talk about certain cities, certain places, certain people, certain events, and everywhere archaeology has any relevance that touches on it in any way, uh, the archaeology supports what the Gospels say. You mentioned 55 now people that have been confirmed by archaeology. When Dr. Geiser and I wrote the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, we put about 30 or so people that have been confirmed in that regard, but you have a much more robust list. Where can we see that list? Did you say Biblical Archaeological Review? It's or is hard it... to find. It's actually, uh, it's been published. There are two articles. Uh-huh. Uh, one very recently, I think it was just last year, in Biblical Archaeology Review. But you can go to the Biblical Archaeology Society webpage uh-huh. and do a search. It's not hard to find. You could just Google it, I think. And, uh, and this list just keeps getting longer. I wouldn't be surprised in a few years. They have to publish yet another uh, update. This list will just keep getting longer and longer as mm-hmm. archaeology uh, uh, gets underway. Now, let me tell you something. Your hearers, your audience need to know that it's estimated we have only excavated 5 or 6% of the biblical lands, the lands that relate to the Bible's stories, just 5%. And so, in other words, one place out of 20 and uh, and even there, these places that we have excavated are only partially excavated, 5, 10, 15 percent of the actual area. So we've only uh, uh, excavated a fraction of a fraction. And so with just this tiny fraction, we have 55 names. If we were to excavate... Um, Everything, and that's not possible, not in our lifetime anyway, it'll be probably centuries before we get close to that, then by that point it'll be approaching 100%. Everybody that's mentioned in the Bible, uh, I don't know if that's possible, but it will, there'll, be, there'll come a time where we'll be talking about hundreds mm. of names of people now confirmed through archaeology. We're talking to Dr. Craig Evans, his book, Jesus and the Remains of His Day, You Need to Get. Now, Dr. Evans, when I I look through your book, there's so many fascinating things you talk about in the book. In the first few pages of Chapter 2, you cite more than a dozen archaeological finds related to burial during the first century. Many of these are ossuaries. Can you explain to our audience what ossuaries are and why the Jews used them? Yes, of course. An ossuary is a bone box. Uh, the Jewish people at that time practiced what's called ossolegium. It's a Latin word. It means bone collecting. And the Jewish practice was as follows. A person died the very day of death. The person was then buried. Unless it was at night, then it was the following morning. The body was washed, perfumed, wrapped. There was a loud lamentation, a funeral, people weeping, musical instruments. The body was taken out of the village, out of the city, outside to the burial place, placed usually in a cave or a, or a cut-out tomb. The body was then laid there, and for seven days inside or near the tomb, people wept and mourned. 
Then it was over. One year later, they returned to the tomb, gathered up the bones, and placed them either in a niche inside the tomb or in a bone box, an ossuary. And sometimes they would write the person's name on the ossuary, and that's where we really get a lot of information. And that's what I'm talking about in my book. We have names of people, including high priests and family members. We sometimes have references to vocations like priest or mason or builder or whatever. Sometimes we read nicknames, and uh, inside the bone boxes, of course, we find skeletons, sometimes as many as five or six different people, including infants. We can calculate longevity from this kind of uh, skeletal information. For example, in a multi-generational tomb, we might get 60 or 70 skeletons, and we discover that only one-third of the members of the family reached adulthood. Two-thirds died in infancy or childhood. That tells you something about the grim realities of health and longevity in the time of Jesus. So it's not a surprise Jesus was known as a healer, a very good one. It's not a surprise, therefore, that crowds of people pursued him, tried to touch him, hoping for healing. Yeah, you have a footnote in your book here that says that, I thought I read that half the people died before age 30 in that in the first century. Oh, that's correct. Longevity was uh, somewhere in the 20s, maybe 25 years old or something. If you made it to age five, you had a good shot at living all the way to 40. There were very few people who lived into their 50s and 60s. There were some, but not many. Some people lived beyond, even into their 70s or 80s, but that was relatively rare. Nothing like it is today. Well, just imagine all of us can think about it. You know, we have grandparents, our parents, uh, our generation, our children, and so on. Think of three or four generations. Well, you know, surely the vast majority uh, of us today live on into adulthood. And adulthood, I'm talking about just late teens. That qualifies Mm. as adult in antiquity. Most people were married by the time they were 18 or 19 years old. Mm. So just think about that. Think of your own family where two-thirds of your own family your cousins, your brothers, your sisters, your aunts, your uncles, and so on, two-thirds wouldn't even make it uh, to the age of 19. And that gives you an idea of longevity and health. Right. Uh, that's why I sometimes reference, uh, it's estimated that one quarter of the population on any given day was ill or injured or in some other way in need of medical help. And so it's not a surprise Jesus was mobbed in his ministry. We're talking to Dr. Craig Evans' book, Jesus and the Remains of His Day. Much more in two minutes. Don't go away. Welcome back to a fascinating conversation with Dr. Craig Evans. His book, Jesus and the Remains of His Day, deals with a lot of archaeological discoveries from the first century, from Jesus' day. We're going to get into some specifics now in this segment uh, because uh, we've been talking about uh, so many uh, finds. We've just kind of mentioned them, but now we're going to get into them. And, and Dr. Evans, I want to. Uh, you mentioned before the break this, this ossuary phenomenon where uh, the Jewish folks would... Uh, bury their dead after about a year of being interred. They'd go take the bones and put them in this limestone box known as an ossuary. And one of the most fascinating ones ever discovered was the Caiaphas ossuary, which uh, people who visit 
Israel can go to the Israel Museum there across from the Knesset and actually see this a box, this bone box, sitting right there. Tell us about this ossuary, if you would, Craig. Well, what's significant about this ossuary is that the name of Caiaphas is written on it twice. Mm-hmm. It's written on the back side of it, and it's written on the end. The reason it's not written on the front is because the front is simply beautiful. The workmanship is extraordinary, and the lid, too, is rounded. Uh, lids can either be flat or gabled or rounded. This one's rounded. If you look at it from the front, it looks like a treasure chest. I don't know how else to describe it. It's quite a beautiful box with typical artistic themes that were common on many of these ossuaries. Well, this one would have to be in the top five ossuaries in terms of beauty that we've recovered. We've recovered about 3,000, by the way. And, uh, and of course, dozens of them are on display in the Israel Museum, including the Caiaphas ossuary. But what's interesting is on the end and on the back, uh, twice, it's written uh, Joseph Bar Kayafa. And so that means Joseph, son of or of the house of Caiapha. Caiapha seems to have been a nickname for this family, a high, high priestly family. And Josephus, the Jewish historian of the first century, writing in Greek, refers to Caiaphas as uh, Joseph called Caiaphas or Caiapha. And so uh, we think that's got to be the same guy. And then we find a, another ossuary some years later, many years later. Uh, an ossuary that refers to a woman uh, whose father is named Yeshua, and his father is Caiaphas the priest. And so there we actually get the word Cohen, priest, uh, added to the name of Caiaphas. And so the two ossuaries together, I think, confirm the first ossuary that, yes, this really is the ossuary of Joseph called Caiaphas, or Caiaphas, uh, who was the high priest in the time of Jesus who sentenced Jesus to die. And I did not realize this until I read your book. And again, we're talking to Craig Evans' book, Jesus and the Remains of His Day. I never knew about that second ossuary, which you're saying is apparently the ossuary of Caiaphas's granddaughter. Do I have that right? Yeah, you have it right. Miriam, or Miriam, that's her name. Well, this has only been known a few years, and so don't blame yourself for not knowing that Caiaphas' ossuary was discovered about 28, 27, 28 years ago. Right. And the uh, Miriam ossuary, just, just four or five years ago. I had doubts originally that the Caiaphas ossuary, I had various reasons for doubting it, but one by one, uh, I've dropped my doubts. And then the, when the granddaughter ossuary came to light, where Caiaphas is referred to as a priest, I no longer had any doubts. So I'm on board with everybody else. And uh, I, uh, I agree that the Caiaphas ossuary is in reference, in fact, uh, to Caiaphas high priest. And by the way, the bones of a 60-year-old man uh, were in that box. So when he died, Caiaphas was about 60 years old. When he judged Jesus some years earlier, I don't know, he might have been in his late 30s or 40s. Uh, I mentioned this to Stone Phillips, you know, who was the host for uh, Dateline NBC right. for a number of years. He said, well, wait a minute, uh, how, how old do you think Caiaphas high priest was? And I said, you know, he might have been 35, 40 years old, and he was quite surprised that he'd be that young. And I had to remind uh, Stone Phillips, hey, people back then didn't live that long. That's right. <laughs> Alexander the Great was conquering the world at 19. Uh-huh. If you didn't get the job done by the time you were 35, chances are you weren't going to do anything. People simply didn't. You know, the idea today, we have a Supreme Court justice who's 70. Well, that was that didn't happen back then. That mm-hmm. was rare that you had people that old. So Caiaphas likely judged Jesus when he 
was in his late 30s, early 40s. In other words, just a few years older than Jesus himself. And then he died at 60, a very ripe old age, and his bones now have been found uh, in this very beautiful, ornate ossuary. That's amazing when you think about it, that we actually have the bones of somebody who sentenced Jesus to die. That's that's amazing. And by the way, those who are going on the trip to Israel, we're, we're going to try and get over to the Israel Museum. Eli Shukran is our guide, so... Uh, He'll try and get us over there and make sure we see this. Now, there's another famous ossuary, uh, Dr. Evans, that you talk about in your book, Jesus and the Remains of His Day, and every one of our listeners should get this book. And it has to do with the James ossuary, which has been controversial, but you actually think this is an authentic ossuary with an authentic inscription, and this is probably the brother, the half-brother of Jesus, who died as a martyr in the city of Jerusalem about 62 A.D., uh, tell us about this ossuary and why you think it's authentic. I think it's authentic because the science says it's authentic. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it was found uh, back in 2002, and it created a big hubbub, a big uh, you know controversy. People without knowledge of the facts said, oh, it must be a fake, or the last uh, couple of words were added. The ossuary reads, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. And some continued... Content, uh, uh, maintained that uh, Brother of Jesus was added later, that those words were fake or modern. But uh, what has since come to light, there, you know, there was a trial, there was a forgery trial, and on it went. It was later conceded by one of the scientists who had started these uh, rumors. He admitted that he had not been truthful to the police. Uh, of course, he's a, he's on, under oath now. He knows he can't lie. And there's, man, I'll tell you the, the the complexities of life in Israel. It's just amazing to me. But anyway, he finally came and said, "Look, here's the truth. I did find authentic patina in all of the words in this inscription, and that would include brother of Jesus. So there's no question about the authenticity of this ossuary. I know it's still kicking around in the public and the popular media that it's a fake or something like that. That is simply not true. It is authentic. There's no doubt about that now. But the only question is uh, identification. You know, so who Mm. is this James, uh, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus? Now, I think it's very likely that it's the people mentioned in the New Testament simply because it is rare to add brother of. There's only one other ossuary that does that, and so it implies that the the person whose bones are in the box, that person is better known as the brother of somebody than as the son of somebody. Mm. And if you know the culture, you know that's really saying something. So in other words, to say that he is uh, James or Jacob, son of Joseph, doesn't really help much. Those are common names. But when you add brother of Jesus, then everybody knows who that is. Well, who could that be? There's only one other famous Jesus. There's only one uh, James, son of Joseph, who has a famous brother named Jesus from this period of time that is prior to 70. Well, you know, I'll bet you dollars to donuts that has to be the James mentioned in the book of Acts, leader of the church, whose famous brother is none other than Jesus of Nazareth. Now, both Josephus and Hegesippus tell us a little bit about what happened to James. Can you relate what they say happened to him? Because he, in effect, dies as a martyr, doesn't he, Craig, as as the leader of the church in? James James took over the church when Peter fled from Jerusalem. That just shows you how hot things were getting for Christians in Jerusalem. This is in the early 40s, 
And uh-huh. uh, Peter Peter uh, hits the road, gets away from Herod the Great's grandson, Agrippa, Agrippa the First, who's killing people like uh, James, the brother of John, son of Zebedee. And so Peter takes off, and James, the brother of Jesus, becomes the new leader, the head pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He is able to do this successfully for about 20 years. And in 62, the Roman governor suddenly dies, and uh, uh, Caiaphas's brother-in-law, isn't this interesting? It's all in the family. Mm-hmm. Caiaphas's brother-in-law, Annas Jr., becomes high priest, and he arrests James and others, almost certainly Christians, accuses them of being lawbreakers, and has them executed. That's in the year 62. When the new Roman governor arrives, uh, Annas Jr., the high priest, is removed from office, and, uh, and and in a way that vindicates James. And then his bones would have been gathered up a year later, that is the year 63, and, and were placed in a bone box. That's probably what we have found. By the way, there are some bone chips in that ossuary, a little bit of DNA. So who knows, maybe someday we can actually do a DNA test. Wow. Now, the ossuaries were no longer used after 70 A.D., correct? So this this must be prior to 70 A.D. That's correct. Yeah, the ossuary, I mean, that's perfectly consistent. If James died in 62 and his bones were gathered up in 63, it's before the war started in 66, which, of course, interfered with Ossolagium because the Roman army besieged Jerusalem and the burial places were outside the walls of Jerusalem. And so Ossolagium came to an end in 67 or 68. But James is a few years before that, and so that would have been near the end of the history of Ossolagium and the ossuaries. Now, the the change in high priest, which allowed the Sanhedrin to kill James about that time, I was reading in your book, again, we're talk, talking to Dr. Craig Evans, his book, Jesus and the Remains of His Day, fabulous book on archaeology and what goes on, what went on in the first century. Um, I, I, I'm trying to make a connection here that might not be the right connection. You were talking about an Estraca. Did I, do, I, do I have that pronounced right, Dr. Evans? Well, it's a, yeah, it's an ostracon. Ostracon, and, okay. Uh, the plural is ostraca. It's a reference to a piece of ceramic, a broken piece of ceramic on which there is writing. And you, you related one that was found at Masada relating to a high priest. Is that high priest one of the ones related to this incident that, where, where James was killed or not? Or is that somebody else? Well, it's hard to say, because there would be other ruling priests on the Sanhedrin, the council, and I'm sure they would have weighed in. And, of course, Masada, uh, you know, is a decade later, the early 70s. Sure, yeah. So so, uh, let's put it this way, Frank, that whoever this ruling priest uh, was, who's mentioned on an ostracon found at Masada, he would have known Annas Sr., he would have known Annas right. Jr., he would have known Caiaphas. They, they, there were just uh, four major ruling priestly families uh, in the first century. They all knew everybody, and they were the real power uh, for, in Jewish life outside of the Romans themselves. So, yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, he might, this, this guy at Masada, he might have been there at the council. He might have been voting thumbs down and urging that James be put to death. This is amazing. We're talking to Dr. Craig Evans, his book, Jesus and the Remains of His Day. And we're just scratching the surface. I've got a page full of questions here. I got about a third of the way through. We're going to come back and talk about 
the house of Peter in Capernaum and maybe the Capernaum synagogue if we have time. And what does this all mean to the resurrection? We'll ask Dr. Evans when we come back. You're listening to Cross Examine with Frank Turk on the American Family Radio Network. Our website, crossexamine.org. Dr. Evans' website, craigaevans.com. craigaevans.com. Back in two. Archaeological evidence related to the New Testament. That's our subject today on Resurrection Weekend. Dr. Craig Evans is our guest, Jesus and the Remains of His Day, a very accomplished scholar in this field, and this book you'll want to get. And uh, we've got a lot to cover in the last segment, so let's get right into it. Dr. Evans, let's talk a little bit about the uh, the crucified victim that was that was discovered in Jerusalem. This can be seen as well at the Israel Museum. Tell us about that. Well, it was discovered in the late 1960s. It's another one of these ossuaries that we've been talking about. In this case, the man's name is written on it. His name was Yehohanan, which is the very fully spelled out form what we say in English as John. And what was so remarkable, when it was discovered and the lid was taken off, there were skeletons of two men. And one of the skeletons we discovered, his shin bones had been broken, and in his right heel was a rusty spike embedded in it. It was 11 and a half centimeters in length. This man had been crucified. Mm-hmm. And then because of coins and other datable items found in the tomb, it was estimated that he was crucified in the late 20s, A.D. Just think about that for a moment. That's when Pontius Pilate, yes, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor who crucified Jesus, that is the guy who crucified John, or Yehohanan. So this is astonishing. And what it shows us is that, yep, people were crucified back then, and they were properly buried. And that was the practice. All the evidence that we have says that. And so during peacetime, not during war, that was different, but during peacetime, people who were executed by beheading or crucifixion or strangulation or whatever, their bodies were properly buried, not in a place of honor, in a place of shame. But after one year, the family members were allowed to gather the bones up of their loved one and then rebury those bones, according to Ossolegium, in an ossuary in the family tomb. And that's what these people did. They wrote his name on the box. So that's a very important piece of evidence. And you can see that evidence in the Israel Museum, friends, if you go there. Those who are going on the trip with uh, with me and Ali Shukran next week, we hope to get to the Israel Museum to see that. But let's travel north now, Dr. Evans. Let's go on up to Capernaum. This happens to be my favorite spot in Israel because you, you really know where Jesus was when you go to Capernaum. There's a synagogue there. There's also the House of Peter. Can you tell us a little bit about the House of Peter and why they think that really was uh, Peter's house or Peter? mother-in-law's house, or it was in Peter's family. Tell us about that. Well, just about every archaeologist that's had anything to do with Peter's house, as it's called, uh, in Capernaum, believe it really is Peter's house. Why is that? Because the archaeology shows that it was just an ordinary house in the first century, but sometime in the middle of the first century, it ceased being a home with an oven, uh, and the oven is removed, and that's strange. Why would you do that? The inside walls are plastered white, and there are lots of little lamp niches inserted in the walls. There's only one explanation for that. It went from being a private home where a family lived to being a public meeting place. You plaster the inside of the walls. That's expensive. You do that 
not because it's an extravagance, but because you want it to be better lit. So if the inside walls are white plaster plus extra lamps, you have a room in which you can see better. That's the idea. You don't need an oven anymore. You don't need a stove. It's removed. It's a public meeting house. That, and we also have found graffiti indicating that there were, there were Christians who were meeting there, possibly even the name Peter uh, written uh, in the plaster. So then this gets turned into a church as we go on into the Byzantine period. The church gets expanded. It's an octagonal-shaped church. All of these ruins now are there. You can see the foundations, the lower portions of the walls. So in my uh, my estimation, there's no doubt this was the house of Peter, or more correctly, the house of his mother-in-law, where Peter stayed with Jesus. And so this became the headquarters of the Jesus movement in its earliest years. And then we look a little bit over and we see the synagogue. Now, you know, you can go there, Frank, you've been there, you've seen it, mm-hmm. you'll see it again. This big, beautiful limestone synagogue that remains. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what's underneath it, the right. black basalt foundation. So how do we know that that black basalt foundation beneath it is what's left of the original synagogue in the time of Jesus. It can't be the limestone synagogue. That's beautiful. It's large. It's ornate. It dates to the 4th century A.D. Well, we know the black basalt foundation is the original foundation because it's crooked, it's out of square, it's not level. And you look at that thing, wait a minute, you'd never build a beautiful building on top of a shoddy foundation. Yeah, you do, if the foundation is sacred, and that was the Jewish practice. So even though the foundation was out of square, no longer level, probably because of an earthquake, you still build the new synagogue on it. That is the Jewish custom. You hear it echoed in Scripture in 1 Corinthians 3. Paul talks about you only build on the foundation that's been laid. That's the Jewish uh, perspective. So I think we really do have the synagogue of Jesus' time where he healed people, where he taught. We even have the house of Peter's mother-in-law, where uh, Jesus and Peter stayed. Amazing finds. Many of the finds, or some of the finds we're talking about today on this program with Dr. Evans, we do briefly mention in the new online course, well, it's not a new online course, we're running it again, it's called Why I Still Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. It begins April 9th. I will be your instructor live via video to answer questions. We'll also have my friend and colleague, Tricia Scribner, helping you through the material. If you want to be a part of that premium course, go to crossexamine.org and click on online courses. It begins April 9th. Of course, you can take the basic course whenever you want. There are several other courses up there, including courses by Gary Habermas, by Dan Wallace, by Michael Patton, by Craig Blomberg, and others. Check it out and uh, be a part of that course uh, on April 9th. Today, we're talking to uh, Dr. Craig Evans, his book, Jesus and the Remains of His Day, who, as you can tell, is well-versed in the archaeological remains of the first century in the Holy Land. He's been over to Israel several times. He's participated in digs. He knows the archaeologists personally, and he's written about them in the book, Jesus and the Remains of the Day. Dr. Evans, have there been any inscriptions found relating to Jesus or the crucifixion? Well, we have found, uh, well, there's a Palatine graffito that actually depicts Jesus on a cross. Uh That's in Rome. 
And right. uh, that is fascinating. We don't have enough time to go into its value and, and its meaning, but there is Jesus dressed like a slave wearing slaves' clothing on a traditional shaped cross with the head of a donkey, which alludes to pagan criticism of the Jewish concept of God. And uh, and so there he is. So that's a very important inscription. But uh, we have found what could be Christ referring to Jesus on a magician's cup, which is another significant piece uh, of evidence. And it just keeps mounting and building up. Jesus is referred to in an ancient Egyptian uh, charm against demons. He's called the God of the Hebrews. So Jesus' name keeps popping up in some very interesting archaeological discoveries. Hmm. Now, you've been at this for quite a while, Dr. Evans. I mean, you taught for years in Nova Scotia. You've, you, you've taught uh, around this country. Now you're down at Houston Baptist University, HBU, with a phenomenal apologetics program down there. Um, let me just ask you a kind of a, a question, a personal question, as you've gone through years and years of research. How has your research helped you personally as a Christian, especially in light of the resurrection? We're celebrating that this weekend. How has it helped you? Well, it's helped my faith in a lot of ways. It's helped me understand what it is we believe, and uh, more clearly, but it's also helped me understand uh, that what we believe is is not myth. Uh, faith is not believing things that are impossible. I, I cringe when I hear people say that. I know. Faith is a response <laughs> to God as somebody who is reliable and trustworthy, where you can take God at his word. And our faith, uh, a Christian faith, is not a blind faith. It's not a leap in the dark. Far from it. And the evidence uh, shows that it is our, we are believing in things that are well-supported. By the way, that's the very apologetic we hear in the New Testament. That's how Paul talks. That's how the author of the book of Acts talks. That uh, faith in God, faith in uh, the risen Christ is not a blind faith but it's a very well-supported faith. It's a very well-informed faith. And so my own work continues to confirm that and strengthen that. Now, have you noticed, as I, 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 you probably have since you're in this field all the time, um, and I've heard this from other scholars, uh, that very few scholars today, unlike in previous years, will try and latch on to a naturalistic explanation of the resurrection because there really is no good naturalistic explanation. Have you have you noticed that trend now? Yeah, I have. It is interesting, too. And a lot of the anti-supernatural bias that was common in uh, modernism has dissipated. Uh, I mean, that's, that's a mix. I mean, it's good on one level. It's not so good on another because we're postmodern now, uh -huh. and that tends to be irrational and highly subjective, and so that's the problem. But there is an openness in general around the world and in the West to the supernatural, so there's not the closed-mindedness there used to be with reference to the idea that God working an extraordinary miracle and raising up Jesus from the dead. But I think the other thing is what you just touched on, Frank, and that is the uh, the non-supernatural, the rationalist explanations, conspiracy theories, Passover plot ideas, and so on. They've run the gamut. They've exhausted themselves. I just They're getting stupider and stupider, some of them. <laughs> it's just no way to explain the Evidence. I mean, you really, it's like believing in UFOs or something or Bigfoot. To right. explain away the resurrection, you have to assert some of the most absurd things. You have to ignore the evidence. We have firsthand 
original firsthand testimony to the resurrection from Paul and from others. It's not second, third, fourth hand. It's not some legend that developed a generation or two later. It's firsthand. It's what started the Christian movement. And, and you know, and so if the whole thing was a big lie or a big story told later, archaeology wouldn't support any of it, but it does. And so, yeah, I think there has been a change. I think, um, even among the hard-headed scholars, I think the only people that continue to uh, ignore the evidence are atheists. Uh-huh. And I think your book is aptly titled. You just, man, you got to have a lot of faith. But what you really <laughs> need is a closed-minded approach where you say, that's I don't it. care what the evidence says, I simply won't be swayed by it. And that's that's a position you have to take if you if you want to say there really is no credible evidence for the resurrection. You just have to say no to evidence. That's no good. Thanks, Dr. Evans. Jesus and the Remains of His Day, phenomenal book, and CraigAEvans.com. Check it out, friends. I'll be back next week. God bless. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.